On January the 18th, 2015, law enforcement officers responded to a report of an unconscious woman found behind a dumpster near a fraternity house. A woman that for over a year will be known as Emily Doe was saved by the two guardian angels, but not before she was assaulted by a freshman, Brock Turner. After the verdict, she decided she will not go down as his victim, rather as a survivor who will change laws, advocate for victims, and in doing so, finally regain her voice. This is the story of Chanel Miller. Check, mic check. Tell them why this is a special mic check, Maya. Tell everybody because we have reached the episode one. Honey, baby, we are on the one hundred. I absolutely love how nobody actually gives a fuck about like episode one hundred and four, which technically means you have been, you know, doing something, podcasting, creating content for like two years. No, people are like one hundred, and they understand it. It is such a round number, right? It is like a cool number like 100%. There's that 100 emoji that looks like mm, on point, like you have done something, you have accomplished something. But still, like, <laughs> just like episode 104 is like, cool, yeah, I exist. <laughs> like, I have summed up two years, I have rounded up two years of your life, but sure, sure, you commit to that 100, to the one that comes three episodes before me. Okay, <laughs> okay. Are you trying to present episodes as people with feelings? It's, a, it's been one of those days I have fought with squirrels again. <laughs> uh, you're sharing this on the YouTube channel as well, aren't you? Okay, if you're watching this on YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast one and vice versa, okay? I'm everywhere, quite literally. And I have been inside of a park today. Listen, the squirrels that are inside of a freaking park, like deep inside of it, it's a completely different ball game for those motherfuckers. They take it as their territory. They act the way that I act when I take my shitter throne. They're like, yeah, this is mine. Like, it is actually so bizarre. Like, three of them were, like, surrounding me from each side. I was like, if they jump on me, this face is a moneymaker. Clearly not, because you haven't monetized this yet. This is such a great check. I'm gonna snap out of this mood real quick because the topic of today is gripping, but trigger warning, it is about sexual assault. And this book is so brilliant, it's just so well written, but it makes you sit in it. And I have read the book, so I will be including a lot of it in the storyline today, so just wanted to let you know if that's not something that you want to listen to, Exit right now. There are a lot lighter topics, but the topic of this month on the podcast, that's why I'm directing you to subscribe, is survivors. We are trying to figure out the motives. We are trying to figure out the one similar thing or multiple things that gets people to actually survive whatever crime has been done to them. And some of the people we are talking about are just brilliant, inspirational, and that is the note that I want to end this year on. Sounds so fucking aggressive. <laughs> like, 
trying to get people to subscribe, you sound like threatening as fuck. Snap out of the intro and right into the main episode zone. Today we are gonna be talking about Chanel Miller. This is the Stanford rape case, this is the Brock Turner case that you have probably heard because it is quite recent. It happened in 2015 and it is just such an inspirational story. Like, you think you know it, if you have heard it on the news, if you heard somebody cover it. But until you read this whole book, you realize you know nothing. You realize you haven't sat in somebody else's shoes. You haven't sat in somebody else's pain. The book, well, I listened to the audiobook, is about 15 hours long. And the audiobook is read by her. I definitely recommend buying it. Literally, it has, like, the best reviews online. If you don't trust me, simply Google it. You'll see it. But also, if you hear this story from me today, I'm taking a good chunk of research from the book. I'd say about 80%. It really makes you sit in it and think about it from all of these different perspectives. Certain things that I had never even thought of. And of course, I haven't lived through anything like it, through anything similar. But it's just the way the Chanel writes. Like, you can see the talent. And also you can see how it applies to the portrayal of the survival story. You know, I'm big on visualization, like, big on imagining things, picturing them in my head, feeling them, putting myself into these people's shoes. And this book takes you right from where you're at, places you right by her side, and by the end of it, you feel like you're a friend of the victim, of the survivor, of the person who has written it. And that, not everybody can do that. So let me try my best to tell you the story of Chanel Miller. Our story starts the evening before, on January the 17th, 2015, in the Miller household in Palo Alto, California. Chanel's sister Tiffany drove home from her uni. She's a younger sister, so she drove home for the long weekend. Once Tiffany reached home, Chanel and her picked up another friend of Tiffany's, and this friend goes to Stanford University. All three of them went to have tacos, they went to watch some sunset while eating those, and then they went to the Miller household. Here, Chanel and Tiffany's dad made some dinner, and they just sat at the table, with Tiffany being home, you know, having a family dinner, enjoying their time, and Chanel was working full-time at that point. So, she said it was kind of approaching her bedtime. However, Tiffany and the other friend were insistent that she goes to this Stanford fraternity party. At first, Chanel wanted to resist, like, stay home by herself, just watch some TV and read. But then she realized, you know, it is a Saturday night. It is one weekend with her sister, who is now living at university elsewhere. Why not? Let me go to this party and just, like, embarrass my sister. So, she started looking for drinks in order to pre-drink at home, and she found some whiskey, but she said there were no mixers, so she just drank some of it. The same way you drink to attend a party you don't want to attend on the condition of being hammered. So, the whole plan was just, you know, I'm gonna get drunk, have fun, I'll try to have good time while also embarrassing my sister. Their mom was driving them to this fraternity house, and inside of the car, they're just joking with her, saying that she looks like a big mama. They're messing with Chanel for wearing this beige cardigan to a frat party, looking like a librarian. 
As soon as they reach the fraternity house, Chanel is still super uncomfortable. She knows she is older than everybody there. She is in her full-time job, her first full-time job after uni, so she is a graduate. All of these people are freshmen. She feels out of place, so she heads to the fraternity kitchen, and there she can only find some non-alcoholic beverages. And at this point, the place isn't still crowded. But it soon becomes crowded once they reach the basement of this fraternity house. They would only be in this KA house, as it's referred in the court documents, between 11 p.m. and 11.45. And during that time, she will find some vodka and some beer, and she was kind of sipping on both. She had taken some vodka shots and then was just sipping on her beer inside of this packed basement. Chanel openly admits later in this book that she did let her guard down and that she didn't factor in that her tolerance significantly was lowered since college times. So at around 11.50, she's already drunk. And this is when she goes outside. And I'm not sure, and she isn't sure, she can't remember this part, whether or not she had tried to go in to pee inside of a toilet, like inside of the frat house, and then it was busy, she couldn't reach the toilet, but she goes outside and, like, finds a hidden spot inside of the bushes where she pees. After this, from what she remembers, she didn't go back in. Rather, they just spoke with some guys that were outside. And at this point, the defendant, Brock Turner, appears, and he has already, what we are going to be talking about later, been approaching girls inside of that basement, been trying to, like, chat them up, make out with them. And here, he tries to make out with Chanel, but she pushes him away. She doesn't think much of it, but later on that night, he tries to kiss her for the second time, just as she is literally trying to have a conversation with her friend. This time, when Brock put his hands on her waist, she had to physically move away from him. And this is when everything becomes a blur in her mind. And we pick up on from the accounts of everybody else in this story. And here is where we learn that around 12, 15, 12, 16 a.m., one of the girls in the group was really drunk and really sick. And nobody understands how drunk Chanel really is, because she's just sipping on her beer after having drunk whiskey and vodka by now, and she's just chatting with her friends. So everybody thinks, like, she's fine, she's safe. So her sister decides to take this girl, who is drunk and throwing up, back to the dorm in order to sleep, and then she's gonna be back within an hour, and once she comes back, she sees the police car. And she just assumes that they're there in order to break up the party. She's looking for her sister, but she can't find her. And she just assumed that Chanel took an Uber home. But what actually happened is that during this time, Chanel rang her boyfriend. They were doing a long-distance relationship, so her boyfriend wasn't in Palo Alto. But he was still awake when she first called him, before Tiffany even left to help this other girl out, at around 11.54 p.m. So she rings him, and at this time, he picks up the phone, and it only lasted about three minutes. Because her talk was unintelligible, like, you couldn't even understand what she was saying. It seemed like she was just rambling off. 
And then, just around the time that Tiffany leaves, so at around 12.16 a.m., Chanel rings Lucas again, and this time he doesn't answer, so she leaves him a voicemail. And he would listen to this voicemail the next morning, and she still clearly sounds intoxicated. Luckily here, because there's so many details in this story, so I'm gonna point certain things out, Lucas did save this voicemail. So this is going to be used in court later in order to prove how drunk she actually was. What Tiffany won't know coming to that scene an hour later was that the police car was called because of her sister. Dean has been awakened at some point around 1 a.m. and after they have been woken up and have realized that Chanel is lying behind the dumpster, unconscious, but still breathing, the police will be summoned to the scene. She was found as a half-naked body. She didn't have a wallet or ID on her. When the deputies arrived on the scene at around 1.05 a.m., Chanel was on the ground lying in a fetal position behind a garbage dumpster. Her dress was pulled up to her waist, exposing everything else. Her underwear was on the ground next to her. The back of her hair was all disheveled, it was knotted, and it was just covered in these pine needles. And even the sweatshirt, the one that they were making fun of her for wearing inside of that car, was partially removed, so only one arm was in it. Which again doesn't sound like somebody who is drunk and outside would do on their own. The reason why the dean had been summoned, why the police had been called in the first place, why quite possibly nothing else had happened. Because you have to really think and sit in it, and that's what this book does so well, and think about what else would have happened had these two boys, these two Swedes, not come upon a scene. Their names are Peter Johnson and Carl Frederick Arndt. And these boys were literally not even at the party. They were just cycling by the fraternity house, and one of them looked around and noticed a man, a hovering figure, which would end up being Brock, just above an unconscious girl. They didn't know at this point when they literally jumped off of their bikes and ran to try to knock him out and also save her. They had no idea if she was breathing. They had no idea if she was alive or dead. As they jump off their bikes, they sort of, like, mutually, I think, like, agreed immediately. One of them is going to try to tackle Brock, and the other one is going to check for Pulse to see if Chanel is still alive. So they do just that. But it is important to note that Brock immediately started running. So by the time the deputies made it to the scene, they checked if Chanel was still alive, and then Peter straddled Brock holding both of his arms down while Carl was sitting on his legs. And the deputies, the first thing they noticed once they arrested Brock was the strong smell of alcohol that was coming off of him and then his crotch area, because he was still having a boner. There are a couple of unanswered questions that we still don't have the answers to and might never have. And one of them, as I mentioned, is what would have happened to Chanel had these two boys not approached her. When she will wake up inside of a hospital, she didn't even know if she was raped. If not, she had to wait for the results of the rape kit. 
But it's not even about whether or not the sexual assault would have resulted in rape. It is what would have happened after. You know, once he had raped her, like, would he have kept her alive? Would he have just run off? And she says in the book she knows if she was to be left alive and if she was to have just woken up, she was quite self-sufficient at that point. She would have gotten up, gone home, showered, and would have just bottled it up. Probably wouldn't have even told a soul later. She wouldn't have reported it. The second thing that we might never fully know the answers to is whether or not Brock had taken pictures of Chanel's body behind that dumpster. The reasons behind that are that they were pictures in a group chat that he had sent that evening that would later be brought up, but because of his lawyers, I don't think they were ever actually brought up in court. And these were the explicit pictures, but then they were deleted from the groups. I don't know if they could retrieve them. They probably could. Come on, it's like WhatsApp or whatever the chat was in 2015. Somebody probably could have retrieved those in order for the prosecution to have a stronger case. But basically, the story here is there might have been some pictures taken, sent inside of a group chat, and then he referred to her breast as tits, and then eventually deleted them. A witness that the detectives talked to who saw Brock Turner standing over his victim, holding his cell phone, and that the light was on from his cell phone. They don't know if it was a flashlight or if it was a flash, as if he may have been taking a picture. And later on, there's a text message on Brock Turner's phone, according to the documents, that says whose breast is that, but uses a slang word for breast. So there is great concern that perhaps there was a picture taken of the victim after he sexually assaulted her. These pictures were allegedly, and I'm saying allegedly because I don't want to get sued, we still don't know for sure, but they were taken or just a flashlight was witnessed by somebody on the scene, but they were taken after the sexual assault, which just ties back into, again, what I'm saying, the fact that he was running, the fact that it would have probably resulted in rape just by how her body had been found as well, and then if the pictures were also taken, everything ties into whether or not he was actually as drunk as he's going to claim that he was. It reminds me of the manslaughter charges, where somebody gets off on manslaughter, gets a lenient sentence, just because they didn't actually go through with murder. They didn't actually commit it. While it was, you know, pre-planned, they wanted to commit that particular offense. So this is something that I was thinking all the way throughout here. Like, what was the intention? I doubt that the intention was only to assault and not to go through and actually rape Chanel. And another important insight that we would probably need more information and more stats on that comes from the book is the hospital that Chanel was taken into. She was taken into a Stanford hospital, and this is somehow, weirdly, in some form of sick poetic justice, the hospital that she was born in. And here is where she will be reborn again. But what she mentions is that this is the one that is further away. So they are basically like 
other options. If this was only to have come to the attention of the dean, if she was to have been more, maybe more conscious, decided not to press charges, she wouldn't have probably ended up there. And, and she was just questioning how many other Stanford students does this happen to? Do they take an Uber? Like, how do they even get to this hospital? If they are still conscious, if they do want to get examined, if they do want rape kits done on them, if they want to actually press charges further, and then you wonder why people don't report it. While she's in the hospital, she is getting the rape kit exam done. They drew her blood in order to get the blood alcohol concentration level. And they deduced at around 7.15 a.m. that it was 0.12. So, approximately at the time of the assault, that would mean that the blood alcohol level was 0.22%, which would be three times the legal limit. But because her blood was diluted through the IV that they had given her, it would have probably been even higher, but they don't really know how high. So while she's at the hospital, slowly sobering up, Brock is at the police station. And at 6.36 a.m., Miranda rights have been read to him. His blood alcohol concentration had been measured at around 3 a.m., and at that point, it was estimated at 0.16%. Something to point out here. His blood levels were measured around 3 in the morning, and then he was questioned after he was obviously administered uh, Miranda writes, so after 6.36 a.m. So he had over three hours to sober up and figure out what he's going to tell the police. And this is what he told them. He said he met Chanel outside the Kappa Alpha fraternity house, and the two of them kissed, held hands while walking away from the house, and then started kissing on the ground. He said he then took her underwear, fingered her, and touched her breasts, saying that he never took his pants off and that his penis was never exposed. He didn't penetrate the victim. And then, because this is definitely going to be bought by people, he said he started to feel unwell, so he, on his own accord, before he was tackled to the ground, decided to get up and leave. And that is you know, when the two Swedes tackled him. So, when the officer asked him why was he running, if that was the case, he said he wasn't. According to him, he consumed about seven cans of beer and a couple of sips of whiskey. He said he was drunk, but was able to provide his account of events to the police. At this point in the timeline, Chanel is waking up and she realizes she's in a gurney, in a hallway. She has dried blood and bandages on the backs of her hands and her elbow, and she's trying to convince herself that she might have fallen. She's inside of an admin office on the campus. She's completely calm and just keeps asking people where is her sister. And a deputy then explains to her that she was assaulted. But she's in a state of denial. She's saying she knew nobody at a party. She's asking, can she go use the toilet? But they had to make her wait in order to conduct the rape kit examination. And then, once she went to use the toilet, she realized her underwear isn't there where she tried to pull it down. And she's, again, trying to convince herself that these deputies, these police officers, just use scissors to cut them for evidence. 
When she tried going through her hair, realizing that all of those pine needles are stuck to it, she would just tell herself that they have all just fallen down while she was lying on the ground, that nothing had really happened. After a few hours of all of the examinations that they have done on her, they finally let her shower. And she describes this moment as she's just inside of that shower, examining her body under the stream of water, saying, I don't want my body anymore. I was terrified of it. I didn't know what had been in it, if it had been contaminated, who had touched it. I wanted to take off my body like a jacket and leave it at the hospital with everything else. She describes this shift so well in the book because inside of that shower she notices like the blue paint that they have put when they were examining her conducting a rape kit. And you know, as she's showering that off, you can't even deny it any longer. It is that process between trying to deny something and not really knowing what you're even trying to deny or what you're even trying to fight, like not actually knowing what had happened and what had been done to your body. And before we can even find that out, before we even can pick up from this point in the timeline, in order to understand how we got here, we have to start from the beginning and talk about the background of both Chanel Miller and Brock Turner. So let us start off with Chanel. And here, it was really hard to find anything online. And even in the book, she mostly in the book talks about this in particular and then how it affected her, her going through it, you know, in order to help out other survivors and also what came out of it. However, if you want, and I would recommend this regardless of just anything, I would recommend you listen to the Childhood Podcast. It is Chanel and Tiffany in this podcast, and it is the most wholesome thing. Literally, it's anywhere, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to it. I have listened to about two episodes to just sort of gain the insight on this, but it is literally just the two of them speaking about their childhood, speaking about the university, speaking about what they did for Thanksgiving. It's the most freaking wholesome thing. So let me tell you what I've learned while listening to the pod. They speak about the homely moments with their parents and their relatives. There's this episode that I listened to called Warm Toast at Grandma's House, where they speak about how, you know, their parents basically let them be their independent selves from their young age, how they would be putting tents on the parents' bed and then just rolling off of it, how they would spend their weekends as kids, that they kind of had the affinity for the admin tasks. So they would really love, you know how like kids love to act as adults when they're that small? They would love running errands with their dad on Sunday morning. They would be like, yeah, Costco was great. Like, would go buy like cereal and milk and think like grown-ups' lives are amazing. And then how after that, what they loved, in particular after, you know, they would get those admin tasks out of the way, how the reward would be going into a comic shop and getting Archie's comics. Something tells me, and don't tell me if you have listened to all of the episodes, okay? I'm still catching up. But something tells me that Chanel 
was probably the person who watched like a couple of episodes on Riverdale and was like, you know, artist comics, and then decided like, what the fuck is this? Kind of like the rest of us, because come on, Riverdale, <laughs> what the hell is going on on that show anyways? They really speak about their independence and how their parents allowed them to express themselves, whether it was Halloween, where, and they shared this on Instagram, I have checked all of the accounts, I have covered all of my bases, where Chanel was dressed as a sumo wrestler, and then Tiffany chose this adorable pumpkin costume, they were kind of like the inflatable ones. How inside of the house, it was all about the comfort. Chanel had her little stuffed shark as a child, like a little stuffed toy, because she was always afraid of the dark, so she would pile up these comforting items since childhood, how they love to role-play when inside of the house, they would always be either teachers or doing other grown-up admin tasks, like writing checks, holding keys, and then getting into a fake car with a fake coffee that the dad made for them, just as if they are going to work, which is one of the most relatable things as a child, especially for people who ended up loving coffee as grown-ups. Come on, all of our parents made a fake coffee for us as kids, right? My parents just did the cocoa thing, and then they convinced me it is actual coffee, and I was like, oh my god, this does look legit. As a five-year-old, like, yeah, as if they're gonna give me caffeine, like, I'm hyper regardless of it. But beyond pretending to be adults, they speak about how the house was a safe spot for everyone. And because they're half Asian, every time when their friends would come over, whether it was just to play after school or for a sleepover, the mom would have the most amazing snacks, from rice crackers, from the leftovers that she would offer them, or just the dinners that she would make. And they would be tempting their friends to come over and eat these snacks, while the best ones would be at Grandma Anne's house. This is where the warm toast at Grandma's house episode comes into play, because they speak about these warm loaves of bread. It is, like, what really leaves impression on you as a child, and also how just fixated both the parents and the grandparents were on feeding these girls with, like, prunes, or different things that, at the time and the place, is kind of like the thing that you would give people for digestion, that you would convince your kids is, like, the healthy foods of, I don't know, whatever the year is. Everybody had it. In the childhood, you had that parent or a grandparent who was like, yeah, if you eat, just eat figs. I have heard it on the news. Somebody said, if you eat 10 figs each day, you will never die. Like, you know, the bullshit that you hear on the news and then you translate it into your household and the kids always remember that because it's insane. Because who the hell needs to eat, like, 10 prunes each day unless you want to spend all of your time on the toilet. Glad we managed to go back to the shitter talk, Maya. Love it. Love how you wrap that all up just to talk about digestion. They speak about how, because their mom is a writer, and their mom, Mei Mei Miller, is actually an award-winning writer in China, writing everything from fiction to essays in Chinese, and their dad is a therapist, so it can't be a more expressive household than that. It doesn't get any better when it comes to self-expression. And they used to express through art, both of them, as they were kids. Chanel was into painting from the get-go, from an early age, and Tiffany was more into just squashing different ingredients, anything from food to slime. It was more tactile for her. But from the young age, their mom used to install Chanel's work around home. 
encouraging them to draw on walls inside of their house. And Chanel even said that her first commission before, you know, she actually did get somewhere when it comes to her art, was this piece sign globe that she painted in Tiffany's bedroom. This self-expression, though, translated and seeped elsewhere from the way that they were allowed to dress themselves to watching the movies with Asian representations. They, in this podcast episode, talk about, like, give me a movie or a cartoon with an Asian representation that's not, like, Mulan. <laughs> and one of them, I don't know which one it is, for the Chanel, I forgot now, says that there's a Spice Girls movie where apparently an assistant is Asian, and they found that that was so detrimental to their childhood because, you know, they finally saw in a movie about a huge band, you know, somebody actually acting, even if it is in a form of an assistant, you know, it is the outside of the usual trope kind of role. It isn't like a cleaner or somebody working at a Chinese restaurant. It is something else. I'm like, okay, we are evolving. And, you know, when you see something like that as a child, it makes an impact on you. As a whole, through this podcast, what I have gained is that they have had a really homely childhood with strong parental figures. But even more than that, throughout the book, Chanel mentions the strong female figures in her family. She talks about her mom and her grandma in great length throughout the book and about their support during her trial. How these women left an impact on her and how she probably wouldn't have even gone through with everything. This book wouldn't have happened had it not been for them and their inspiration. And when it comes to Brock, I really, really tried here. And here it was equally hard to find anything. And something that Chanel mentions in the book, and I have noticed, because again, I'm structuring this script and trying to find everything about their childhood in order to understand the psychology for nothing else. It's not because I want to do him an equal kind of justice. It's because I want to understand how we got there and why it actually happened. Could it have been avoided? But what the book points out, and what I can vouch for after having researched this for a while, is that with Brock, it isn't about who he was as a child, where he came from, how he came about. It isn't even about who he was during the time of the assault. Everything that I could find is about who he could have been. And that's something that Chanel obviously points out as a survivor, as somebody who faced him in court, but it is also the only type of information that I could find on him. So the information about his background all comes from his parents' letters that they are going to read out in court later. Brock was almost three years younger than Chanel. Chanel was born on June the 12th, 1992. I don't know when I plan to mention that. And Brock was born on August the 1st, 1995. Chanel was born in Palo Alto in California, while Brock was born in Dayton, Ohio. Brock's parents remember how his dedication to academics, to sports, and developing and maintaining relationships and friendships started off early. They said their fondest memory, I think this was from his dad's letter, was helping him out prepare for his weekly spelling test when he was younger. They said that as trivial as something like preparations for the spelling bee test, 
might sound that it just shows the importance that Brock placed on academic achievement, and that that never left him from an early age. He would make his parents quiz him, give him even like a final preparation quiz as they would drive on school just before the test. From his early age, Brock was also quite connected to his family, whether it was his parents, but they mentioned also that he was quite attentive to the needs of his uncle. And this uncle was apparently mentally challenged, multiply, physically handicapped, and also non-verbal. I don't have any further information on what being attentive to the needs of the uncle means, but as Brock got older and progressed in school, he needed his parents' intervention less and less. They said that this natural ability, along with an extremely strong work ethic, would be what would eventually lead him to academic success at all levels. That he was equally talented in athletics, he participated in baseball, basketball, but swimming was really where he caught everybody's attention. Swimming was really what made him stand out. His baseball and basketball coach from school would give a statement as well, saying that Brock was a pleasure to be around, that he always treated other kids, parents, and teachers with respect, and that he is going to cherish the moments that he had coached him forever. With the realization that he is actually a really great swimmer and, you know, his coach is pushing him in all of these athletic areas... As a freshman in high school, Brock then goes to visit Stanford on one of those open days. And he goes with his parents, and they said that they were all just in awe with the campus, with the swimming facilities, and the rich history that the school had. At the point that Brock went to visit Stanford, he was already to compete in his first national-level swim meet called the USA Junior Nationals. And then together with that first exposure, that first feel that he had of Stanford, it made a lasting impression on him. So, of course, in 2013, when they found out that Brock was actually accepted to Stanford, which that year had 4% acceptance rate, and he was awarded on top of that 60% of the swimming scholarship by the university, they were overjoyed. They said that they were most proud when he was accepted academically, before he could even be considered for the athletic scholarship, because he got in because of his brains, and then the university decides whether or not they can give any financial assistance. Even with the 60% off paid by the uni, the parents knew that it's going to be a financial struggle for Brock to attend it, but they were determined to make it work, because they just knew that this was Brock's dream, and also everybody knew that Stanford was also the best university for him to be in. Everything that led to this meant that in September of 2014, when they drove Brock to his university campus, when he was to start uni, everybody was overjoyed, and Brock was very much excited in order to start excelling and both commit to swimming while he could study at the same time. But then, when he came home for Christmas during the break, he actually told them how homesick he really was, how he was struggling to fit in socially, and that he didn't very much like being away from home. In hindsight, the parents remember that with this information, they considered whether they should even send him back to Stanford after the winter, after the Christmas break. And they said that, again, once they reconsider everything, 
it kind of made sense that he was socially struggling, meaning that he fell into the culture of alcohol consumption and partying in order to fit in under the peer pressure. Both parents do say that they felt, again, in hindsight, when looking back on all of that, that Brock probably needed a better support structure. He was from the Midwest. He probably needed to be closer to the family and friends. However, despite of that, because it is Stanford, because it's not like he is resisting to return to it, he returns to university after the Christmas break. What his parents did touch upon, but didn't give us many details on, is his past, in particular the alcohol consumption, and how he was actually dealing with not fitting in, how he was actually falling under that peer pressure. And here this is presented in court, and it could have swayed the judge. There were pictures that obviously I don't have the access to, but I do have the access to some of the court documents. So what was presented in court were the pictures of him smoking from a pipe, the close-up picture of him and some of his friends with a bong, the video depicting him smoking from it and drinking a bottle of liquor immediately after taking the bong hit. All of these taken on December the 27th, 2014, so just as Brock had returned to Stanford after telling his family he was homesick. In his statement later, he would say, coming from a small town in Ohio, I never really experienced celebrating or partying that involved alcohol adding that he was an inexperienced drinker and party-goer. But this, if we are to believe the text message exchange between Brock and his own sister, and also some of his friends, that preceded September 2014, that preceded him going to Stanford, being that that might not be so correct, him being inexperienced, not dabbling into drugs and alcohol. There was a text conversation from June 2014 where his sister asked him, did you rage last night? And Brock said, yeah, kind of. It was hard to find a place to drink. But when we finally did, we could only drink for like half an hour. And she responded, enjoy it while it lasts. The funniest thing to look back on high school is having beer but no place to drink it. That will go away in college. There are also texts from August 2014 where he was just texting his friend to try to get some weed, saying, do you have any herb? And when they said yes, he said, swag, should I just meet you all N-word there? And what the prosecution team is going to use is how this dishonesty matches his dishonesty in the aftermath of the sexual assault. All of the evidence on his phone, whether it is from December, from after his Christmas break, or whether it is from before the time that he went to Stanford, means that he is not as truthful. Meaning, how can you trust him when he says he didn't snap any pictures of Chanel on the ground? How can you trust him when he says that he willingly stood up, that he wasn't running away from the scene? Another thing from Brock's past that was mentioned in court was his prior possession of alcohol while underage and fake ID arrest. And this happened in mid-November 2014. So, if we are to trust his parents, this is when he was most homesick. 
It happened on campus while Brock and a group of his friends were seen by this deputy walking and drinking beer. So they had a rucksack packed with beer, and he also had it in his hand, and he's clearly not 21. And he kind of tried to hide it. I don't know how you do hide a bottle of beer. Like, do you put it under your hoodie? He tried to hide it, and when he realized that is dumb, then he decided to run. And while running, he heard the commands for him to stop, but he still continued to run. He would later say this was a split-second decision and that he regretted making it. Once they caught up to him, they opened up the backpack, found the other beer, and also in his wallet that he had a fake driver's license. But from what I gathered, this was the university police, not the real ones, so they didn't bring any charges against him. And this is going to become relevant in court later, because everybody from his parents to him, when they were to read the statements and his own defense team, are going to say that he had no previous charges. And that, plus good behavior, which can be proven by academic records, by his achievements, is usually what the judges look for when they decide how lenient a sentence should be. So just keep thinking about everything that we spoke about as we go along and pick up in that timeline now. Everything from his age, the lack of maturity, the repeat drinking and running when he shouldn't be running away from quite literally a scene of a crime, and whether or not he's showing remorse for any of those actions and then how that will apply in the timeline. When Chanel and Brock met each other on that night in January, they didn't know one another, they came from completely different backgrounds, and they had no friends in common. Chanel graduated from Gunn High School in 2010, after which she attended University of California of Santa Barbara, and she studied literature there and graduated in 2014. While Brock graduated from Oakwood High School in 2014, and at the time of his arrest, he was 19, still a freshman at Stanford University, enrolled on a swimming scholarship and with dreams of swimming at the Olympics one day. And something that is definitely only my personal opinion, but not only did the two of them have different ambitions from one another that night when their worlds collided, but their families did. And I don't see this mentioned, but that's why it's important to have the context, to have their upbringing as well. But with Chanel's family, it seemed like from an early age she was allowed to use self-expression. She was allowed to express herself. She was allowed to be self-sufficient. And that applied to Tiffany, that applied to everybody in that family. With Brock, of course, he was self-sufficient. He had to have a great academic record to be accepted to such a great university. He had to have an even better athletic record to get that kind of scholarship. But then you also have to understand that that whole family also saw a bigger picture. They saw bigger ambitions. And that, for me, is confirmed with his return to campus. They could have been like, I mean, Stanford isn't the right fit. Like, everything that they're saying in court, everything that all of those statements are stating, like, it isn't the right fit, he's clearly using alcohol, weed, whatever, to cope with it. But he's still return despite of that, because he had ambitions of swimming at the Olympics, but so did probably they. 
and with that comes the added pressure. So let us pick up where we dropped it off in the timeline. In the book, Chanel describes in further details about that first time that she woke up and that they told her that they believe she was sexually assaulted, that when she first became conscious, she was in her pants asking them to pee, but they had to wait for the urine sample first before they allowed her to do that. And she said the moment after, the first time that everybody leaves the room and you are left alone, is why survivors understand other survivors. That you are simply not ready to hear the answer of where the underwear is, why the pine needles are in her hair. After they drew her blood and conducted a rape kit, she was signing some papers and she wasn't even understanding what exactly she was signing. She just saw on the top of that page words rape victim written in bold. And she said about this, like, if I sign this, do I become one? Like, what does it really mean? Like, am I accepting this? Like, I still don't remember what happened. My clothes were confiscated and I stood naked while the nurses held a ruler to various abrasions on my body and photographed them. The three of us worked to comb the pine needles out of my hair, six hands to fill one paper bag. To calm me down, they said it's just the flora and fauna, flora and fauna. I had multiple swabs inserted into my vagina and anus, needles for shots, pills, had an icon pointed into my spread legs. I had long pointed beaks inside me and had my vagina smeared with cold blue paint to check for abrasions. And to me and you, this sounds chilling. It is chilling, especially for somebody who actually went through it as a survivor. But she said that even though nobody said she was raped except that piece of paper, even though they're all helping her cope with this by saying it's just flora and fauna, by giving her the morning after pill, by giving her a pamphlet that mentions the side effects one month down the line, few months down the line, by trying to mentally prep her, doing the small talk as they were conducting the further exams, trying to get her mind out of there. The primary feeling, she said, she felt was warmth. Anybody surrounding her, they couldn't undo what had been done, but they can do their best to record everything correctly that can then be used to prove what had been done to her. Chanel describes this transition of still not knowing what had happened to her, but now having to step out into the real world. On that morning, all that I was told was that I had been found behind a dumpster, potentially penetrated by a stranger, and that I should get retested for HIV because results don't always show up immediately. But for now, I should go home and get back to my normal life. Imagine stepping back into the world with only that information. They gave me huge hugs and I walked out of the hospital into the parking lot, wearing the new sweatshirt and sweatpants they provided me, as they had only allowed me to keep my necklace and shoes. Once all of the physical evidence had been collected, they brought a detective in. And Chanel details this in the book, saying that, you know, he just pressed onto that button, started the recording, and asked her everything, from what she ate, how many shots of vodka she had, how many people does she remember being at the party, did she drink things from a sealed container, like was that beard in a can or in a bottle, where did she pee, when did she go back inside, and this is when her memory cut off. 
He further asked her if she hooked up with anybody and did anyone have a permission to touch her anywhere. And this is where we have the transcript from court, where what Chanel remembers was that Brock was living in the same dormitory as the friend that invited them to the party that was attending Stanford, that they had mutual friends but weren't close, the friend that was attending Stanford and Brock. Chanel said during the party, herself and this friend were dancing on the table and that Brock followed them onto it. That this is when he started flirting with her, that he put his hat on Chanel and she took it off. After that, he started to dance behind her and try to turn her around to face him. She was uncomfortable again, turning her body away so that he wouldn't be directly behind her. And this is when he became touchy, put his hands on her waist and stomach, even on her upper thighs. She felt uncomfortable and then got down off of that table. She said that Brock creeped her out because of his persistence. And this is when the officer confirms that they caught him and that they can arrest him based off of the probable cause. Because at this point, they already had the transcripts of the witnesses, both of the Swedes, but also other people who have been at the party who noticed Brock disappear. And then, of course, they're going to have Tiffany's statement and statement of the other friend. After the interrogation, Chanel finally rang her sister. She told her which hospital she is in, and this hospital was about 40 minutes' drive from the city, that she's fed, she's fine, you know, if she can just pick her up. And immediately you see Chanel trying to just take her sister's pain away, trying to protect her, even when she's picked up in the hospital, by her in these strange clothes. She's just, like, making fun of it, while knowing there's still scars and abrasions underneath those clothes that they have given her, that she still doesn't have underwear, and that there is still that blue paint where they have conducted the rape kit. Once Tiffany and her leave that hospital, we learn from Tiffany what had happened. So she left the party to help that sick friend, and once she returned, she realized the police was called because of a noise complaint. So she was just desperately trying to search for Chanel. She went in and looked into every room and couldn't find her, and also she wasn't answering her phone. So she just concluded, okay, maybe she took an Uber home and then left. Before they even returned home, they went to in and out the drive through just to lose time, just to waste time. She didn't want to go home. She didn't want to face the reality of whether or not she's going to speak to her parents about what had happened yet. And eventually, once they returned home, the detective rang her, asking her if she wants to press charges. And she said yes. She said that word unlocked her future, one in which she will become 23, 4, 5, and 6, before the case was closed. Once at home, the parents were off at work, so she showered again, and the whole day her and her sister spent just watching TV. Later that day, she goes to the police station to pick up her phone, and they ask her to email all of the pictures that she took during the night, so she does. And this is when the detective loops her in on what Tiffany was yet to share with her. And that was that through Tiffany's statement, they learned that Brock actually tried to make out with her twice. And sort of she turned her head in time, so he just made out with her cheek. 
And here she knew that she will get further details from Tiffany on this and that they will come in court eventually. So she just leaves it because it shows the pattern of behavior. She still thought there's no way this case was gonna go to trial. There were witnesses, there was dirt on her body, they have the evidence. He ran but was then caught. She thought He's going to settle, even if he hires any lawyers, he's going to apologize, and they're going to move on. But instead, what she was still unaware of was that he hired a powerful attorney, he would end up hiring expert witnesses, private investigators, who will end up finding every single personal detail to use against her. Once she returned home, she called Lucas, she called her boyfriend, now that she has her phone, and he said that he was worried about her last night, did she make it home okay? And here is where Chanel learned that she actually called him during the blackout, that she left that unintelligible voicemail, that they even spoke on the phone before, but she was slurring. So again, he asks her, what happened last night? Did you make it home okay? She said yes, and then just hung up and cried. The next day, after dinner, her sister returned to school, and she knew that she is supposed to show up to work, because the life must go on. But what she didn't know was that at 11 p.m., the night after Brock was arrested, he was let out on $150,000 bail. Less than 24 hours after he was arrested for sexually assaulting her, he was free. The next day, Chanel returned to work, and she spoke about how, you know, she was pretending like everything is fine, she was just sitting in her cubicle pretending to go on with work, but there would be times where she would just be blankly staring at the screen or looking up for news articles on her case, because they named him, but they didn't name her. She would mention the moments of realization when, in the kitchen, she would see the abrasions on her skin and she would kind of try to, like, roll the sleeves down in order for them not to be noticed. She got into this routine where she would bike to work, where immediately as she would leave the office, she would bike back home, and then sometimes even at home, she would stay up looking through these articles, reading, all of the comments, especially all the negative ones, they would just stick into her mind and she couldn't resist reading through all of them. But it was sitting in the office when, with the rest of the world, she learned what actually happened to her. It is there where she found out for the first time about how she was found unconscious, with her hair disheveled, with long necklace wrapped around her neck, bra pulled out off of her dress, dress pulled off over her shoulders and pulled up above her waist, legs spread apart, penetrated by a foreign object by someone she didn't recognize. That's when the pine needles in her hair made sense that they didn't fall down from the tree. It made sense that he had taken off her underwear, his fingers having been inside of her. And then, in the next paragraph, she read something that she would never forgive. She read that, according to him, she liked it. And she said, and she repeats this on Oprah as well, because of how much of an impression this left on her, as she's reading all of these graphic details about her sexual assault, about supposed feeling that she had felt according to somebody else, 
At the bottom of that article, his swimming times are listed. She was found breathing unresponsive with her underwear six inches away from her bare stomach, curled in fetal position. By the way, he is really good at swimming. Throw in my mild time if that's what we are doing. I think the end is where you list your extracurriculars to cancel out all the sickening things that have happened. Just like she found out how she was found on the scene from online articles, the same will apply when it comes to his name. She will learn that from Google. And the same will apply about the object that was used to sexually assault her. It will end up being that she was digitally penetrated, that he used his fingers. And whether at home or at work, this became her life. The deputy district attorney rung her, saying that the rape kits sometimes take months to process, and depending on the results, he was by that point charged on five felonies, but two of those, two rape charges, might be dropped, again, depending on what they can prove or not. She advised her to tell the family members if she told them about the assault, which at this point she hadn't. The district attorney told her to tell family members not to speak to anybody because they might be reaching out to her. And Stanford called her saying that he is not allowed on campus anymore. To add to that, Tiffany also called her saying that somebody leaked her name and a friend's name and they couldn't be legally protected. Only Chanel's name could. So now, under that pressure, with the added feeling that maybe somebody might reach out to her family and then her parents might learn from somebody else, and also with the fact that Tiffany's name would be mentioned in the news articles, she felt pressured to tell her parents what had happened to her. So one evening she just sat them down at the dinner table and said, you know, that Stanford rape case, and then she broke down. The way she describes it in the book is she just started saying, there's news, don't look at the news, I'm not sure, but I think it was just his fingers. He was caught, and then her mom realized what she's actually saying and asked, who is he? And Chanel says this drew her back to a memory in their childhood, a flashback by a pool, where her sister Tiffany sunk to the bottom of it with her towel and the mom realized again what was going on and just in the nick of time went into the pool to save her. After her mom held her as she broke down and the next day made lemon pie for her to feel better because that was her favorite, again Chanel keeps going online because that is where she's getting the news. And this is something that I hear so many times as just a consumer of this content. And if anything similar, any sort of sexual assault or rape had happened to you, this is what just isn't being talked about. How the victims find most of the details about things from the articles online, not from the police, because it is leaked to the media either straight away or they get the news of it before, and there just needs to be a better protocol in place where the police actually rings the victim, not the family, because, again, we shouldn't be pressuring people to actually come forward to say that the worst thing ever had happened to them, to their families. 
but there needs to be just a better protocol in place for the police to actually communicate to victims to say this is exactly what it happened to prepare them for what they're about to read online. Because, yet again, in the days to come, it would be the online articles where she found out that Brock denied rape, that he made out with other girls according to the other witnesses, but she is the only one that they referred to as a victim, that he said he kissed her on the ground and fingered her, but he also said he wouldn't be able to recognize her, that there was no face or name in his mind, but he knows that she enjoyed it. Weird how that happens. And then came the comments, and especially about the comments, but mostly about the articles, because that is really where the blame falls for those comments to even start. He saw her as a body, but attempted to destroy her as a person. She would see all of these articles, comments, opinion pieces about not trying to blame the victim, but wasn't she older? Why is she hitting on a freshman? You just know if a sentence starts with not being racist or not trying to blame somebody, it's going to go into the opposite direction. Like, just don't even say it then. It's like not victim blaming, but... No, then no but. No but, just don't victim blame. What kind of mom... Oh, this is the one that triggered shitted me. What kind of mom drops her daughters off at a frat party? The responsible one. Like, the fuck? The fuck? This is the most common one that she mentioned a few times in the book, and I was just baffled. Like, my dad still, to this day, okay, not since they were divorced, but when this, my parents still lived together, every time would go home. Not only would he be the one to drive me off to a party, but he'd also supply me with beer back home, because he knew what I liked, then he can assess, you know, am I tips, like, am I okay? You know, he'd drop me off, he'd know where I am, the whole point. The responsible parent. I just, I just don't understand. Like, what are we blaming the parents now for being responsible, knowing where their kids are? Make it make sense. Then drinking herself to unconsciousness. Her drinking will be taken apart, while his just won't really be taken into consideration as much as you're gonna learn. What happened to the body system? Did she pee? And then she dropped her underwear off. Like, logically, she dropped it off in the bushes. Then what? He picked it up from the bushes and got it into the dumpster? Then again, not to victim blame, but unless he gave her a roofie, why would a woman get so drunk? They called her finger licking good, referring to KFC, I think, or Burger King, whichever it is saying how he was accomplished, listing all of his accomplishments, his strokes, like how fast he could swim. He is the one who lost everything, according to the media, while she was just the nobody that this happened to. And this is where her alias, Emily Doe, emerged, and Chanel said she tried to pass it all to Emily, to sort of live this double life, to have that, and then her own in control, but that couldn't be done. Everything just seeped in. She would try to tell Tiffany not to read all of the comments, but then she would be treating them as a personal attack. She would be memorizing all the negative ones, debating them in her head, like having her own argument in court, you know, as if she is a lawyer arguing against them. She became quite addicted to reading these negative comments and then arguing and debating with herself, as I'm mentioning, but it would only be later months from now, when she would actually start seeing a therapist. And that therapist would ask her if she had ever heard 
any of those negative comments in person. And she kind of thought about it and was like, no. So that's when she realized she was giving these comments the equal weight as to actual opinions of the people that mattered. But for the next three months, according to her, the nights were the worst. I can't sleep alone at night without having a light on, like a five-year-old, because I have nightmares of being touched where I cannot wake up. I did this thing where I waited until the sun came up and I felt safe enough to sleep. For three months, I went to bed at six o'clock in the morning. I used to pride myself on my independence. Now I'm afraid to go on walks in the evening, to attend social events with drinking among friends where I should be comfortable being. I have become a little barnacle, always needing to be at someone's side, to have my boyfriend standing next to me, sleeping beside me, protecting me. It is embarrassing how feeble I feel, how timidly I move through life. Always guarded, ready to defend myself, ready to be angry. For the next few months, as she was assigned the prosecutor, the deputy district attorney, Alalei Kianerki, who told her, gave her advice that she needs to sit tight because this is a long, slow process to try to go back to her life. She tried to separate Emily from her own life, saying that she was the one who filed invoices, spent time with her family, while Emily lived inside of a narrow world. She had no friends. She would just be the one who would appear to go to a courthouse, and she seemed to still know nothing. On her own case. There was still one person that she had to tell, and that was Lucas. So after she asked him to send her the voicemail, because it was needed by Alalei for the court, because by this point she knew that Brock had hired his own attorney, she wanted to tell him in person. And here we have a bit of an insight that before Lucas, Chanel was in one other serious relationship when she was 17 or 18, but that guy went to a different college. So again, she attempted a long-distance relationship, but they eventually grew apart, and that summer she got a job at a Chinese restaurant, and she was kind of drinking and parting it up to just surrender and get over that breakup, just couldn't process the new reality. And then one night, after a few months of just being single, she goes to save her friend from some creep at another party, and here, that party then moves to a bar, and this is where she met Lucas, who was a few years older than her. Lucas would eventually ask her whether she was raped, and she said she still doesn't know, she still isn't sure, because they're still waiting on those results. And when she dissects every part of her and Lucas's relationship, or rather every part that is going to be used in court, she just said, like, how much she hated it. From that voicemail that she started by slurring, fucking, and then edited saying, I like you so much, she was again arguing in her head, debating how jury is going to see her starting voicemail swearing. Then, in late February, she had to go back to the police station to give an interview about dating Lucas, about how serious the relationship was, about how often they communicated, why are they living apart, like, all of that. And she just said it should have been enough to say, I don't want a stranger touching my body. Not, I don't want it because I have a boyfriend. What if you were assaulted and you don't have a boyfriend to prove your authority? 
Maybe you cried rape not to be seen as a cheater. A victim can never win. She would be at work when she was to get the call that stated that they found no semen on her, meaning that the rape charges are going to be dropped. So they are to proceed with the sexual assault charges. And now the hearings are to start. And here is yet again where everybody's schedules get affected. Tiffany is at her own school. She needs to change her schedules according to her hearings. She at work, she didn't confess to her manager, to anybody about what had happened to her, which is her right not to do. And now, you know, she has to request the time off. And then somebody, a district attorney in this case, couldn't appear during the hearing, so they had to postpone it. So now she has to reschedule everybody's lives. Her parents, her own, her sisters, her boyfriends, all the witnesses' lives around a schedule that she describes as the illusion of structure, which is exactly how you see courts. You're like, okay, this is a super organized system, but rather it is just utter madness. There's just an illusion that there is some form of order there. So it has been rescheduled for a couple of months, and during those, she just knew she was appearing at work later and later. She couldn't keep up. She was having a backlog of work to do. So she decides to quit before she gets fired and to enroll into this printmaking workshop in Rhode Island. She used most of her savings onto this trip. Her hospital bill ended up being around $1,000 because America, you need to sort your healthcare system out. But that would have been paid by Brock when, you know, they settle and when the court proceedings are over. So she used most of her money towards this printmaking workshop and then to rent out a flat there. But even there, she kind of goes into detail about how much she was still struggling, because nothing was still resolved. Like, justice just is to happen yet. So here she was drowning and also behind at the beginning of it. And she wasn't like asking questions because she just realized she's too far behind. And then one day she just decided, fuck it, that no one could tell her that she couldn't do it but her. So she just started asking questions when the flatmates would ask her if she wants to go out, she would say yes. She just wouldn't even think about it, because if she was to think about it, she would say no. But here she describes just how more aware and triggered she was by her surroundings, that there were these moments in Rhode Island where she would just hear catcalls on the street, and her body language would just show that she wouldn't want it. Like, she would stiffen. It would be a completely different reaction to what it would have been before. She started avoiding certain streets, even recording it on her phone, you know, like the person behind you, and then would be sending it to Lucas. And Lucas was, of course, concerned, because he was the first one to offer to Chanel to actually move with him to Philly, but instead she chose to do this printmaking workshop. So he asked her to get a car. She didn't. She didn't want to give up her walks, saying it's not fair, because why is she the one who needs to get herself enclosed inside of a car? So she just dealt with it, immersing herself into this printmaking longer and longer, you know, staying behind to catch up, to really see this through. She wrote about two other times while she was in Rhode Island, 
that men would just either catcall or behave differently and how she reacted. There was another man pulling up, asking to take her home in a car, and she's filming him and all of them at this point, just in order to feel like she's in control and to have the proof this time, because your whole perception, everything just completely changes. You're suddenly thinking, how are you going to prove every single thing in court? What kind of argument are you going to have? And then, during one last party, another guy hit on her. It was just like the typical drunken small talk by that guy, and she just sat there, like, saying nothing. So he asked her if he was to stay there and not go to another party, is she going to have sex with him? And she said, no. Like, where is this coming from? As they were headed home then after this party, three guys stopped by them in a car. And here, she just decided to start acting crazy, which also, by the way, is one of the best distracting techniques. Just start acting like you're off the rocker. So she just started screaming in the middle of the street, and the man, of course, called her crazy. But then her and two other girls that were walking down with her started sprinting after the car. And at the traffic light, once they caught up with them, she saw in the rear view mirror how they were looking at her. And she knew, again in the back of her head, if they were to come back, if they were to get out of that car, that they are going to need a witness about what happened to them. So they backed off. Once the printmaking workshop was over and she returned home, she heard that the first hearing is scheduled for September. Of course, that is going to end up being postponed again for the next three weeks, just after she has organized everything, informed her sister, informed her family. She would just have to ring them again and again to just tell them that it had been rescheduled. I mean, even the flight when it comes to Lucas, even, like, her own trips and plans of, like, how to transport herself to the courtroom, literally every single thing would be up in the air. She described the courtroom as quite stagnant. There weren't many people because it was the first hearing. It wasn't a trial. It was sort of a practice run, as she would say, but she was still sworn in. And she was told by Alele that, you know, objection means stop and wait for the judge to make a decision. Avoid being overly emotional. You will be asked to identify Brock Turner. Just, like, don't take anything you hear personally, look into the audience, no friends are going to be watching, like her family wasn't there either, so that should make it easier for her. As if, if this book taught me anything, it is that there is no such thing as a perfect victim, even if you think it is, but also there isn't such thing as perfect behavior. Even if you were to be an attorney, a lawyer yourself, and any type of crime was to happen to you, and you were to be found inside of that witness stand, you have no idea what they're going to throw at you. You have no idea how you're going to react. So, she said after an hour of wait inside of the courthouse, they were finally ready. And she did have the time to go through the folders of the statements, so there was sort of a preparation. Not exactly, but she had the time to freshen her memory, because this is almost a year after the freaking incident. And during this hearing, she recalls how, as much as she considered she was prepared, she realized that they can object 
the lawyer on the opposite side can scream objection, and then the judge can decide whether or not I will be stricken. So when they ask her why she decided to go to the fraternity party, she went on to say that if they suggested, like her sister and a friend, to go anywhere else, she would have. And then the defense attorney asked for that question to be stricken. And she said about this that they were teaching her to be afraid to speak freely. What if that was the part that mattered? What if that part was something important about the sexual assault and the defense attorney just decided that it can be stricken, just like that? Another thing that left an impression on her was how time was dissected to a minute. How only in these particular circumstances you are expected to remember this to this particular detail. Everything from the basement, from how many people they were in there, from them jumping on that table and dancing there, squatting between the trees, chronology of her alcohol consumption, questioning her closer and closer to her final memory, and then when they asked her what was the next thing that happened, she broke down, and her lawyer, Alelei, asked for recess. During an interview with Oprah, she said that when they went for that recess and she went into the toilet, she realized that she was at her lowest point, but she was in the middle of it. She was actually going through with it. So she just got up, washed her face, and just went back in. About the remainder of the questioning done by her lawyer, she said that for a moment, when she was talking about all of the details that happened in the hospital, them painting her genital area blue, sharing the details of when, what, and where, that she felt like she held some power, at least for a second. And the final question by Alele here was, did she have any interest in hooking up with anybody in court today? And she said no. Then his defense lawyer stood up, and Brock refused to look at her during all of these proceedings. And in the cross-examination, she was asked about having tacos, going to the taqueria. She said she had one taco before dinner. How many shots? How much of everything? With whom? You know, poking holes, which is what they do. But she said that she knew that he was a good lawyer, in a sense, because his questions became non-linear. You know, like, did it happen before or after you peed? Was she standing on a table or on a chair? She was trying to poke holes in every single part of her story. And then when he asked her, at the hospital, did she realize that she was injured? She said she noticed the scratch on her neck, but it is then on the stand that a repressed memory popped back into her mind about her on the toilet inside of that hospital checking for other injuries. But now, how do you mention that? Because that hasn't been mentioned in a statement by the detective. And this is, again, things that aren't spoken about. If, you know, you are drunk and then you remember something, a memory that you have justifiably so repressed and would have even if you weren't drunk, then how do you mention that when, you know, that isn't on the record? Speaking about this first hearing, she will say that it was misconstrued in the media, that they have focused on 
if she was that drunk that she forgot she was drunk. Again, her drinking was the most important thing during these press coverages. She said that, you know, despite of Tiffany testifying, despite of her trying to remember every single detail, them trying to align the story, but not too much, so it doesn't seem like they have conjured up some plot and invented it, that still it felt like they were just punished for showing up. But one thing that offered her a different perspective was when she found out the two Swedes, the two witnesses, have testified. And here she found out that they checked on her, they checked for her pulse before chasing him down, saying that masculinity is found in vulnerability. She found out that as they tackled him to the ground, they asked him, what the fuck are you doing? Telling him that she is unconscious saying that they introduced a whole new voice inside of her, the one that would allow her to one day face her attacker, asking him, what the fuck were you doing? Between this hearing and the trial, there will be a couple of months. The trial is only going to start in March of 2016. So Chanel decided to move to Philly. In that time in between, her DA was assigned to a new department, but she decided to keep this case going, for Chanel to still be her last case. She was assigned a new advocate, and also she started seeing a therapist once a week. And during this time, she describes again, she had the same paranoia when it comes to her being out on the street, seeing everything and everybody from a different perspective. Is there a witness? Is somebody catcalling her? Does she have a video recording of it? And here she will be doing mundane things, just like going out, getting food in order to cook for the two of them, cooking and cleaning and just literally waiting for Lucas to return home. As he had to go somewhere, like for a tournament for three days, she started panicking and decided she needs something else in her life as she's waiting for this trial. It can't be all about this. So she joined this comedy club at uni. She wasn't a student here, she would just go to make new friends, and she said both people existed in me. The one that would break down in court, and the one that could be a closing act of a stand-up show. The whole time that she was in Philly, when she would accompany Lucas to uni to just like sit down and draw during his class, when she would stay at home cooking and preparing meals for them, or even during the comedy club when all of them would just go out and socialize. She said without the verdict, without knowing that he is going to be found guilty, she couldn't really move on. Like, this wasn't the life that she belonged to. So in March of 2016, she was back in Palo Alto. And with that, she was back to the madness of it all, not knowing exactly what day she is going to testify, not knowing when it's going to be Tiffany. How can you prepare for this? Tiffany was now in senior year. She was about to have her finals. Lucas had to fly in. She describes that there is some sort of readiness conference, that the lawyers meet up, that there is something in place for them, but never for victims. And this is something that I faced partially here only as a witness, because I was a witness in my friend's sexual assault trial. That part isn't my story to tell. But I was just shocked to my core of how slowly it goes. Again, the exact same thing. It could be a replica of this, and this happened inside of the UK. 
So exactly the same, like you don't know when is your court date. But here also the time has passed, like your memory of course like is replaced by other things, other chunks belong to it now, and you aren't prepared. Like the thing is, the problem isn't so much that I wasn't prepared as a witness. I mean, that is a huge problem as well, because then you understand and they hit you with like some evidence that you don't remember doing, writing, whatever. The problem is that the victim isn't prepared. That is the huge problem. That trial just left me with such a bitter taste in my mouth about the justice system, about how it treats its victims, and I wasn't even the victim. And the person was acquitted, so yeah, that was also the part of, of the frustration. During this trial, the courtroom was expected to be full. Witnesses, including detectives, friends, Lucas, her mom, watching this time. So almost 15 months later, she is again being warned not to be angry, not to get too emotional, revisiting her statements be somewhere between unemotional and too emotional. If you don't know the answer, just say that you don't know the answer. And Dalile never actually showed her the evidence that they're gonna show in court because she wanted genuine emotion coming from Chanel. Brock here would be testifying for the first time and the jury vote would have to be an anonymous. But this is where we get insights from Chanel, again, about something that you don't think about. Like, nobody likes being called for jury duty. Nobody likes being that person who is taken from their life and just placed into a jury box. And something that she knows, because she has read every single article written on her, is that she never read 12 positive comments. And the jury would have no survivors, because that is how they select them. They can't have somebody who is completely biased. Lucas was supposed to testify first, but this is when a change in schedule, another change that she couldn't do much about, or at least she thought, had happened. Because they changed it up so that Chanel is the first one on the stand. And she, of course, is freaking out, because she planned to drop Lucas off to court that day, and then to go shopping, to go buy like some smart pants for the trial. But now with this change, she's like, well, I don't have like smart clothes. I can't just appear in anything in court. And Lucas just like kind of stops her, like, breathe. This trial can't happen without you. You are the one who makes the rules. So you can ring them up and tell them, no, actually, either Lucas testifies today or, you know, I can still testify, but tomorrow. Like, you are the one in control. It's such a mind-blowing perspective when you think about it. It's like, all of these people can change up your life, but it's your life. You are essential to this court proceeding. She describes the day that she testified as, again, something that just dragged on. She would be sitting, reading her statement, going to the toilet. An hour would go by. Her grandma would be there with a box of chocolates. And she would just be, you know, taking it like, like, thanks, grandma. Two hours would pass. She says, like, I don't even know how many times I went to the toilet. Because of the nerves, because I didn't want to, you know, have recess, get up from the stand and then have to leave. And finally, she goes in. She's asked everything from spelling of her name, how much does she weigh, where was she in January, the taqueria, how many tacos did she have, which of the sister's friends, 
to describe her next memory as best she can, her waking up in the hospital, did she remember anything else. When faced with this phase, with her waking up inside of a hospital, the rape kit, everything, she goes to the toilet, they take recess again, and once she is back, they show her the pictures of her unconscious inside of the hospital with the pine needles in her hair, and then yet another picture of her head completely just taken over by her hair. Which begs you to think, like, this is why it's so traumatizing what those two Swedes had seen. And also just how nonsensical Brock's whole story really is. The fact that, like, did you care to any degree where you can see if she was found in such a way, he didn't even bother for her to be able to see his face if her head was just engulfed in her hair. The question that was thrown in again and again by her lawyer was, did she ever have any intention of hooking up with someone? To which she said in the book, ask me a million times, no is the beginning and the end of this story. And in the dream world, that question and that answer would be the only question that a victim, a survivor of sexual assault, would be asked in the future. But we don't fucking live in the dream world, do we, Maya? That weekend, Lucas flew back to Philly, and on Monday she returned to court. And this time it was all about filling in the timeline, or when she actually called Lucas and when she blacked out. They asked her for the best estimate of the time that she made those calls, and when did the last memory occur, to then poke holes in her story, Brock's attorney asked her everything from where did the mom park the car, did she chug the vodka, how many shots, all of the decisions that she made, did she do all of the parting during her college time, asking her about her pattern of behavior, asking her about the blackouts that she had during her college times, and then also during that summer when she was dating a guy when she was 17, 18, like before she met Lucas. They asked her the questions about silencing the phone, and apparently this was the catch because she didn't remember silencing it, and it was still left to ring, like it was still left unsilenced. And she just got caught in all of that, saying, like, I didn't study enough. Like, why did they catch me out on something so dumb? But it is because the trial is over a year after the actual crime was committed. And here, his pattern of behavior was shown, just like hers, but it just didn't seem to have mattered. They mentioned everything that they mentioned during the hearing and that we have heard of before about how Brock actually tried to make out with her sister twice, how he was hitting on Chanel during that evening, how after being rejected by multiple girls, including both Chanel and Tiffany, then he purposely took Chanel to an isolated area behind this dumpster away from everybody the area that was dimly lit, and assaulted her on the ground behind the dumpster. That behind the dumpster thing just isn't emphasized on enough. It isn't emphasized to my liking. And it will be mentioned again later in the story, but I just, I just have to mention it right now, because, I don't know, if by any chance somebody's listening to this, 
whichever gender you are. I hope you read this book. I hope you listen to the audiobook. I hope you listen to her impact statement online or watch any other coverage, any other interview with Chanel. And in doing so, you also realize that not a single girl, I bet I won't be fought on this particular point by any other women in the comment section, but not a single girl would voluntarily, regardless of how kinky you think she is, would have sex with you by the dumpster. Behind it, on the side of it, in front of it, no. Because by association, if you're doing it right next to the garbage, there's always that analogy that is going to play in that woman's head. That she, by default, is garbage herself. Not a single girl would have voluntarily gone with this guy who looks like the backside of a mushroom. This is why you don't leave the mushroom up unless you're literally like mushroom collector and you need to realize are they venomous or not. You don't lift it up and look it from upside down because it doesn't look good. I have never seen a person that I have spoken of where uh, no hairstyle fits this guy. Like, he has changed it a couple of times because this trial proceeding has lasted for a fucking god century. He has changed it a few times and uh, not a single one suits him. You have to consider, at least for a second, something that a court document stated, that this behavior is more like a predator looking for a prey. The court document stated about how he alerted her behind the dumpster, that this behavior is not typical assaultive behavior that you find on campus, but it is more akin to a predator who is searching for prey. They have also stated they received information that Brock made another girl uncomfortable with his sexual advances during a week prior to the assault at a different party, clearly demonstrating, according to Chanel's lawyers, that his behavior is recurring. That, including to his behavior on the night of, shows the past conduct at fraternity parties demonstrating the pattern of behavior, during which he is not provoked or coerced to commit these crimes. Chanel's lawyers also stated that there are witnesses, the two Swedes, Mr. Johnson and Mr. Arndt, who testified against what Brock was saying, that she was awake, consenting, and enjoying it. And the Swedes' statements are even further corroborated by the first responders who witnessed Chanel on the scene, and then the hospital staff who confirmed that she was still unconscious over three hours later. They addressed what they knew that the judge is going to take into consideration, so the lack of his prior criminal record, and also the fact that he was youthful. And they said, yes, even though he doesn't have any criminal charges prior to this, that typically people who commit these types of sexual assaults are by definition youthful. And the sentencing goal should be to deter others from committing this type of crime. So the court shouldn't just give the benefit to Brock because of his youth. Other factors that the judge takes into the consideration is usually whether the defendant would express remorse. Here, Chanel's lawyers showed just how many times he lied during these proceedings, during the police interrogations, and then compared to what is actually presented in court. So, at trial, 
He would claim that he engaged in consensual mutual behavior with Emily, though with Chanel, claiming she had an orgasm after a minute of him digitally penetrating her, meaning fingering her. A minute. Apparently, after this minute, he checked to see if she liked it. So, you can't recognize if she liked it or not. He also claimed that he only stopped hooking up with her to throw up and told her he was going to throw up, but then he never did. He claimed the only reason that he ran is because Mr. Johnson grabbed him, became violent towards him, despite the fact that he previously told detective that he did not run. So, because his statement had to be that Chanel was still alert and well and reacting and responsive and all of that, once he attempted to get up and go and he was tackled, he was the poor victim on the ground tackled by the two Swedes, that meant that he doesn't have something to regret, meaning that he was never remorseful. He has never, to this day, apologized for what he had done. When it comes to the cross-examination by the defense team, Chanel would describe that they would always end with right, sort of trying to plant the answer, that she had to work against it. That their final question was about the dinner that their dad prepared, that they ate before the party. And he asked her, you know, so it was the dinner of broccoli and rice. And apparently she said yes, but they ate quinoa. How do you pronounce that word? I can't pronounce that word for shit. So when she left that courtroom, she was like, well, is it gonna be the fact that it wasn't rice or the fact that the phone was actually silent? Which one is going to ruin the case? And Chanel wasn't the only one leaving that courtroom thinking that she has done something wrong. They did a similar thing to Tiffany. She testified that she left Chanel thinking she would be fine, but what she meant to say was that she thought Chanel is going to be fine, she couldn't have possibly known, so the defense would be able to use this. And here, in so many cases during this book, Chanel just goes into the mama bear, into like the protective mama over her sister. She recalls a childhood memory when they were by this pool, and Tiffany and her got locked into this room, and the dad was kind of just, like, napping by the pool, so he wasn't responding to their banging on the door. So Chanel sneaked out through a vent in order to wake the dad up, saying that she would go to the ends for her sister, and she hated, absolutely hated, that the defense was about to use her. By the end of the trial, the end of May of 2016, the prosecution will be asking for six years in prison on different counts here. We have the assault with intent to commit rape of an intoxicated person. For that, you can get four years in jail. Then penetration of an intoxicated person, six years. And the third charge is penetration of an unconscious person, for which you would get six years. So, they asked for what they thought they could get. But now let us focus on the main points of Brock's defense that are going to determine whether or not this is the verdict that he can get. There were three main points of Brock Turner's defense, and one of them was alcohol. The same whole plot of how he isn't used to drinking and how he was wasted that evening. He said in his letter to the court 
that was an attempt for him to be allowed to remain on probation, teaching others to learn from his actions. I know I can impact and change people's attitudes towards the culture surrounded by binge drinking and sexual promiscuity that protrudes through what people think are at the core of being a college student. My poor decision-making and excessive drinking hurt someone that night, and I wish I could just take it all back. The real problem, however, has never been acknowledged. The whole narrative here for Brock becomes how he can teach others about binge drinking at college and how they can change that kind of culture. That isn't the culture. That isn't the problem. The problem isn't that you were drunk. The problem isn't that you would have a hangover the next morning. The problem is that you sexually assaulted somebody and he can't see it. He can't for the life of me. It's the most frustrating thing during this whole case. He can't see it. Chanel, to this whole argument, said in the book, rape is not a punishment for getting drunk. And we have this really sick mindset in our culture as if you deserve rape if you drink to excess. You deserve a hangover, a really bad hangover, but you don't deserve to have somebody insert their body parts inside of you. Second part of Brock Turner's defense will be consciousness. He hired a blackout expert, they paid him $10,000 to testify that she could have still consented. You know, the whole point that he was trying to prove was that she enjoyed it, she had an orgasm, and then told him that she was enjoying it. And she responded to three questions that he had had with yeses. So, the first question was, does she want to dance with him? She said yes. Second was, does she want to go to his dorm? She said yes. And the third one was, does she want to be fingered by him? To which she also responded with yes, according to Brock. This was refuted by the responding paramedics to the scene, who said that she didn't respond to the shake and shout test, but she only opened her eyes when they literally pinched her nail beds. And not just that, but they rated her as 11 out of 15 on the Glasgow coma scale. She was almost comatose. And he's like, yeah, I'm gonna hire an expert saying that she consented and said that she enjoyed it as well. Other people testified to his character here. His teacher testified about his character. And Alele, <laughs> Chanel's lawyer, was literally there just being like, why is this woman here? Like, what he does at school is, of course, going to be different to what he does in his private life. So she asked this teacher if she ever talked about sex with Brock. And the teacher was like, no, of course not. Then what are you doing there? Then there was his ex-girlfriend, and apparently Brock only showed emotion, only cried when his ex was on the stand. And the third part of Brock's defense that he believed will exonerate him was the DNA underneath his fingers. And the criminalist Craig Lee here testified that the woman's DNA was found under his fingernails. But Lee's test didn't show when the DNA was deposited and also couldn't tell if it was blood. But he said it did resemble blood. And Chanel testified that she woke up with dried blood on her hands and elbows, which would match up the story if she's bleeding and he's using the same hands to, like, repress her on the ground and also to sexually assault her. In her closing statement, Alele stated it's not okay what he did to her. 
She pointed out all he had to do was unzip his pants, that no woman wants debris in her vagina five minutes after she meets a guy. She really did her best to put everybody else there in Chanel's shoes. And Chanel said, like, when she was presenting, you could feel the room mold around her. You could just hear reason in the air. And then his defense attorney had his own say. The defense attorney said that Tiffany, on the stand, stated that she thought she was okay, so she left her there. Who knows her better than her own sister? It's not uncommon for people not to remember incidents. So he was allowed all of the inconsistencies, according to his lawyer, as he was drunk at the time. But even though she sounded slurred in the closing statement, mind you, this man said that uh, it was just her silly way of how she speaks with her boyfriend. Like, they haven't all listened to the voicemail in court. He concluded that they put the expert on the stand that stated that she was capable of consenting, that Brock said he had three yeses, and to take the burden of this young man's shoulders. The trial began on March the 14th, and on March the 30th, the verdict was reached. And during the time that they were waiting for the verdict, they have told Chanel she literally needs to appear in the courtroom to hear it within 15 minutes meaning that with transport, she would have three minutes to get ready. So she has to be on call, waiting for the phone to ring, for her to appear inside of that courtroom. It's just the next level. Like, things you learn when you actually read about something like this happened to somebody just hits different. So that is exactly what happened. They just got a call. Her mom, like, tried to put, like, lip gloss on her to try to make her representable and everything. And they immediately got ready, got out of the house, jumped into the car, and then it took them other 12 minutes to get to court. Brock Turner was found guilty of three felonies. Assault with intent to rape an intoxicated woman, sexually penetrating an intoxicated woman, with a foreign object and sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. This isn't the end, though, because he got out on bail until the sentencing that was to happen two months from then. And during those two months, Brock was supposed to write a statement, as were his parents and as was Chanel. This time between the trial and the sentencing, to me, just describes how crazy it is for somebody to actually be expected to just continue with their life as normal, to appear, as Chanel did, writing up some comedy sets, like appearing on stage, even going to see Margaret show, and then trying to basically barge into her green room to tell her what an inspiration she is for her, for somebody like Chanel, to see somebody who is also Asian on stage doing her thing, and also knowing that there is a deadline, knowing that she has to write this impact statement. Well, it's all optional for her and for Lucas and for Tiffany, but of course, they all want the statement. She has things to say. Her first draft of this statement was 28 pages long. She was reading it out loud. She was yelling it to the point that she lost her voice. And then you really see 
everything, the consequences of this whole trial, as she goes to buy some cough medicine and her card gets denied at the pharmacy. She had $2 in her account. She has already spent all of her savings, just literally trying to lead a normal life after her assault. That draft will be cut down to 12 pages in the end, and this is what she will present to the judge. Now, back in court, she is to face judge directly, so everybody else is behind her. Her back is to everybody in this courtroom. But something that isn't mentioned in so many things, I didn't know that this could happen. She sees the judge interrupt the person in front. So, they're all in the courtroom, you know, people are reading these impact statements, other sentencings are going on. So, when she sees that, you know, the judge reminding them to wrap it up. She says that to her it meant telling somebody that their problems are taking too much time. But she knew she's going to go up there. Her statement is short enough. It's as short as it could be. She's going to make eye contact with the judge. And this is some of that statement. There's a full recording of it done by Chanel online that I'm going to link in the description. But this is how it starts. You don't know me, but you've been inside me, and that's why we are here today. She describes that night, describing how she learned what happened to her once the rest of the world did, and she read about it online, that this is when she read how she liked it. She addressed something, and if there's one single takeaway out of this episode, this would be it, that had she not gone it wouldn't have happened. That is the premise. Had she not gone, it wouldn't have happened to her. But it would have happened to someone else. How do you prove that you didn't like it when somebody's narrative changes a year into it? One year after the incident, Brock remembered. By the way, she actually said yes to everything, three times. Chanel to this said, usually a consent is a natural progression. Usually, a woman speaks a full sentence. You don't have to ask her and prompt her just to get a yes. She addressed these changing statements and how he said he would have stopped if she asked him to stop, but it took two guys on bikes to stop him in the end. She asked him to walk us through it. Would he have put her underwear back on? Would he have gotten her up? Found someone to help her get somewhere warm? He considers himself a true victim. He was the one who was attacked by the Swedes, diminishing her own story while her wounds, her abrasions match the fingering and while he already admitted to it on the night of. The truth won. You are guilty. Three felony counts. Twelve votes per count. Thirty-six yeses confirming guilt. She thought he is going to finally own up to it, but then... He read his statement. You said, being drunk, I just couldn't make the best decisions, and neither could she. She addressed this, saying that alcohol is not the one who stripped her, who assaulted her. She admits to her mistake, to her drinking, but it's not criminal. Regretting drinking is not the same as regretting sexual assault. This is not the story of another drunk college hookup with poor decision-making. Assault is not an accident. Ripping his statement further apart, in 
his statement, Brock said that he was wrong to be doing what everyone around him was, referring to drinking. She said not everyone around her was assaulting her, and also he did it in the area where nobody could see him do it. Sipping fireball is not your crime. Peeling off and discarding my underwear like a candy wrapper to insert your finger inside my body is where you went wrong. Why am I still explaining this? Drinking culture and sexual promiscuity that goes along with that. Goes along with what? Like a side effect, like fries on the side of your order. Where does promiscuity even come into play? I don't see headlines that read Brock Turner, guilty of drinking too much and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with that. Campus sexual assault. Lastly, you said, one night of drinking can ruin a life. His. You forgot about mine. He is the cause, and she is the effect. Your damage was concrete, stripped of titles, degrees, enrollment. My damage was internal, unseen. I carry it with me. You took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice, until today. I am a human being who has been irreversibly hurt. My life was put on hold for over a year, waiting to figure out if I was worth something. He can't give her back the life she had. While he is worried about his reputation, she kept spoons inside of a fridge so that the next morning she would take them out and put them against her puffy eyes. Your attorney's closing statement began. Her sister said she was fine, and who knows her better than her sister. You tried to use my own sister against me. Your points of attack were so weak, so low, it was almost embarrassing. You do not touch her. You should have never made me fight for so long to tell you how you shouldn't have done this to me. Your life isn't over. You have decades of years ahead to rewrite your story. The world is huge. It is so much bigger than Palo Alto and Stanford. And you will make a space for yourself in it where you can be useful and happy. But right now, you do not get to shrug your shoulders and be confused anymore. You do not get to pretend that there were no red flags. You have been convicted of violating me intentionally, forcibly, sexually, with malicious intent. And all you can admit to is consuming alcohol. Do not talk about the sad way your life was upturned because alcohol made you do bad things. Figure out how to take responsibility for your own conduct. Brock had about a single sheet of paper that came after this, about 10 sentences to say. He apologized, planning again to educate students on dangers of alcohol. But then his dad stood up. He said how much this affected Brock, how he barely eats, how him being on a sexual offender list is going to affect his life, where he can live, visit, work, how he can interact with people and organizations. And then he said, that is the steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of his 20 plus years of life. He called sexual assault 20 minutes of action. Let's just let let that sink in. Now let's sit in it. 20 minutes of action. 
Sometimes I can sit here and I can joke, make comments about who I believe these parents are, you know, it's like, oh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Here, I don't have to say a word. His statements are stating everything. It is unbelievable. It is just something else. That this is actually read out in court, in front of the survivor and her family. And you, you put it on paper, like you probably proofread this because you thought it was a good thing, because it ends by you suggesting that a probation is the right punishment for your son. So you actually put this on paper, you read it, and then you came to court with it. And you read it out loud in court. So the judge, when he was sentencing him, read some of Chanel's sentences because he stated that they helped him out to make a decision. And that decision was six months. Six months in jail, he found less moral culpability attached to the person that's intoxicated, meaning Brock here. He had no criminal sophistication, so he agreed with his parents on it. And the judge decided that if he was to punish him, he would hurt the community. He would hurt his community, too. According to Brock's statement, he was remorseful. He said he was sorry. And the judge said that, according to Chanel, he would need to confess to make it sound like he's sorry. Basically, like, this is enough for the court. But what Chanel would always say in this book is, is the apology valid without a change? Is it valid if you don't accept what you are actually apologizing for? If you're apologizing for a wrong thing, is the apology valid? And the answer is no. Mm -mm, no, it just isn't. The DA objected because every day of good behavior somehow means a day off of his sentence, meaning that six months actually turns to three months. Three months in county jail and he is going to be out. Chanel said when they left the courtroom that she felt humiliated, like her DA was begging for a year. They asked for six years. He could have gotten from what I read up to 14. Like, why are we begging? She said like it looked like a play, something humiliating for her in front of her parents to just sit there and accept this. She thought, you know, they might call them back after they leave saying that it was a mistake. And later, her impact statement will be finished by these words. The judge had given Brock something that would never be extended to me. Empathy. My pain was never more valuable than his potential. Something else that would come in the news articles after the sentencing was Chanel's recommendation. They would finally make it public. So, during the time between the verdict and while she was writing the impact statement, the probation officer rang her. She wasn't coached. She didn't know what is the right or wrong thing to say here. So, she told this probation officer that she doesn't want Brock to rot away in prison. She told them what she truly wanted was for Brock to get it, to understand and admit to his wrongdoing. But the probation officer, of course, misconstrued that, saying that, you know, she is recommending a more lenient sentence, and the judge took that into consideration as well. So when referring to this in her impact statement, Chanel said, the probation officer factored in that the defendant is youthful and has no prior convictions. In my opinion, he is old enough to know what he did was wrong. When you are 18 in this country, you can go to war. 
When you are 19, you're old enough to pay the consequences for attempting to rape someone. He's young, but he's old enough to know better. She went on, saying he's a lifetime sex registrant. That doesn't expire. Just like what he did to me doesn't expire. Doesn't just go away after a set number of years. It stays with me. It's a part of my identity. It has forever changed the way I carry myself, the way I live the rest of my life. She thanked everybody who helped her through this process, from her family to Alelei, to the police officers on the scene, to the hospital staff. But most importantly, thank you to the two men who saved me, who I have yet to meet. I sleep with two bicycles that I drew taped above my head to remind myself they're heroes in this story. That we are looking out for one another. To have known all of these people, to have felt their protection and love, is something I will never forget. To girls everywhere, I am with you. This statement, in full, completed by Chanel, was posted on BuzzFeed the day after the verdict. Do I wish I was a fly on the wall in Brock Turner's room when he saw it, when he saw it trending, when he saw millions and millions of people reading it, when he saw people in Congress, news reporters read out her statement online, not his, not his parents, not the whole 20 minutes of action thing? Yes, yes, I would have liked to have been there. Because this is where the narrative changes. This is where all the negative comments died down and Chanel received an outpour of support, which helped her feeling of shame dissolve. She received letters, emails from all of the other survivors. After the narrative has changed and after Chanel's statement, three main changes happen. And Chanel dedicates about, no exaggeration, a quarter of a book to this. So. I would definitely recommend listening or just reading it because I'm going to summarize this because I'm aware we are here for probably over two hours by now, <laughs> probably over that time. The first thing that happened is that Stanford got in touch with her. Well, rather, they got in touch with her with the usual apology, hiding behind the handles on social media, giving a public statement saying that they take these claims very seriously, which she called an institutional betrayal. Even before the trial and the sentencing, they wanted to offer Chanel some settlement money. But she's smart. She knows how settlement money is going to look like if it ever reaches his defense attorneys. She would eventually get some restitution money that she gave her dad for emergency, put it into Tiffany's pension fund, just proving that she really doesn't care about this being about her. She cares to protect everybody in this story. But Chanel wasn't interested in money. She was interested in making some form of change, some form of physical statement, for some support services to be offered to the Stanford students, for them to know about this process, to know that this hospital is 40 plus minutes away, to know that they will have to pay an Uber if they want to be examined. And more importantly, to contact the victims of sexual assault. She had said in the book after her own assault, the dean had her name. So the newspapers didn't. It was never released to the public. But the dean did. And for 10 days, they haven't contacted her. So her mindset was set on how do we make sure this doesn't happen again. And Stanford offered a plaque 
is that how you say? I swear to God, <laughs> me and the words are just not. It's immigrant issues. Plague, plaque, a little piece of thing. There was supposed to be a plaque, a little fountain, sort of like a garden commemorating where it happened so that they eliminate the whole garbage thing, that they make it all nice where people can go and reflect. The plaque would have some of her impact statement on it. And this is where the issues began, because she has sent them what she wants to be written on it. The quote was supposed to be, you took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice, until today. But Stanford emailed her back, politely rejecting her, saying that this can be triggering to survivors of sexual violence. After that, she said she was fed up with always having to tone it down. Why would it be triggering to victims for her to speak her own truth? Wouldn't they relate like so many millions of people did with her impact statement? However, after the book was published, so the garden was in place by that point, but once the book was published in 2019, bear in mind, the assault happened in 2015, Another key contributor in the student activism that was on campus, that was a current student, Shanta Katipamula, rallied people around her. They signed petitions, rallies, put up posters and flyers for the plaque installation, and eventually shifted to focus on other sexual assault issues on campus. Because you can bet that they didn't stop after Chanel's. We have to run every play in the book, essentially, to get to this point. The petitions by Shanta yielded 1,800 signatures, but even that wasn't enough. Different professors, student body president, trauma expert, various other faculty members spoke in favor of her quote during the faculty senate meeting, and it's only after that that the senate voted their support of the plaque installation. Chanel said that there was a light installed, there's a bench, there are dumpsters have been moved to the front so they're more visible, and she writes in hope for schools to see how much power they actually have, that they shouldn't just be resorting to writing polite emails, how they try their best, just help them, just do it. Why does it take literally pulling every trick in the book for something as simple as this to happen? She would like you, if you sit in her garden, to close your eyes. 90 feet from where you sit is where Brock's knees hit the ground. It is a place to remember, not as the place where she was assaulted, rather as a spot where he fell, where she was saved. Before we speak about two other changes that Chanel brought on, let us conclude the saga on Brock Turner and where he is now and what had happened after he was sentenced. So he was sentenced to serve three months, which he did, and he was released in September of 2016. He is still registered as a sex offender and is obligated to participate in the sex offender rehab program. This sex offender thing particularly just means that he has to register his address every few months. I don't think it affects him hugely, like I have tried to check. It is kind of different in different states, but like he has a job and can still get a job. I think it depends again where he applies for one, so it kind of affects him, but not to the degree that you would think it does. 
So the terms of his sex offender status require Turner to register in person every few months for the rest of his life. He currently lives with his parents in Ohio. In 2017, news broke on Brock's appeal being filed. It was 170 plus pages long and over 60 pages focused on Chanel and how drunk she was. She talks about this in a book, how suddenly everything disassembled again, how she attempted to move on with her life, but now just couldn't, even from glancing at the contents, because what needed to happen was the attorney general needed to submit a response, and then next year they would go in front of the judges. There were chances of retrial and her going through all of this again, but they were slim. She reflects on the statements made by Brock's mom that were read in trial and were then mentioned again in the retrial. And they were always like, why him? Just remove him off the sex offender list. He doesn't deserve this. And she never mentions Chanel. But Chanel is taking this from the perspective of, thank God it's me and not somebody else. Not my sister, who he also tried to make out with. Not anybody else, because it could have been somebody else, and would have eventually, if not that evening, if he didn't come upon somebody, there was a pattern of behavior there for him to have eventually assaulted another woman. In December of 2017, he will finally request for his conviction to be overturned, for the lifetime requirement to register as a sex offender to be cancelled, and for him to be given a new trial. The grounds for this, I can't, I, I just, I just couldn't wait to share this with you. Just tell me that this is not the most bizarre thing. The grounds for this are, the assault might not have happened behind the dumpster. It could have been the side of it, could have been the front. You don't have witnesses saying where exactly it happened. The second argument that everything was based on was that he tried to argue he pays lawyers for this. He pays he pays somebody for this. They, they spend money on this. That he engaged in outer course. Not intercourse, outer course. And this, in turn, was to convince the judge and the California Courts of Appeal to cancel his sex offender registration, provide a new trial, everything. Yet, outer course, what is it? Well, nobody knows because it doesn't fucking exist. The judge in court told him that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Arguing that evidence shows Brock wasn't trying to have intercourse with the woman because he says he was partially clothed during the attack. One judge on the panel seemingly skeptical of the argument, telling Turner's attorney, I absolutely don't understand what you're talking about. His appeal was denied, I know, shocker, and the California Courts of Appeal concluded that the appropriate course of action would be for Brock Turner to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. And just like that, three years and eight months after the sexual assault, her case was finally closed. About the sentence, about this whole procedure on Oprah, Chanel said that she just wanted a proportional sentence. At least one year. It never crossed her mind that 18 months after she had to put her life on hold, they're just going to reach this point. They asked for six years, and in the end he served three months. One month for each felony. 
The other consequences that Brock had suffered in turn was that Stanford announced within two weeks of the incident that he isn't allowed on campus again, so I assume that means he was expelled. The national swimming team said that he will never be welcomed in their ranks again because they have zero tolerance policy towards sexual misconduct, and the teams for the Olympics are pulled from the national team, which means that his Olympic dreams are also over. As of the articles from 2021, he is now working for the cooling technology company in Ohio. According to the Daily Mail, so take this with a grain of salt, he is at an entry-level job earning about $12 per hour. According to their sources, he worked in shipping for this company and now he's in quality control. He still lives with his parents in Bellbrook, Ohio, and drives a family car, which is a Chrysler. Brock Turner, shoved to the fucking side. Let us talk about the two other changes that Chanel had brought. One of them is directly related to this prison sentence, and that is the changes to mandatory prison sentences. According to one of the two bills, the minimum sentence for the crimes that Brock Turner committed here would now be at least three years like Turner, lenient sentences. So Rosen championed the new state law. It forces all judges to give defendants convicted of the same crimes Turner was at least three years in state prison, also known as a mandatory minimum sentence. That means three-year prison sentence for sexual assault of an unconscious or intoxicated person. And the second bill broadened the definition of the rape in order for it to include digital as well as penal penetration. These were signed into law on September the 30th, 2016. Once the district attorney Jeff Rosen and the deputy district attorney Alalei Kianerki spoke on this topic, the feminist advocacy groups said that the judge is the problem. The sentencing rules change just isn't enough. So they organized this whole campaign to recall the judge that sentenced Brock Turner. This was run by a professor of law at Stanford, Michelle Dauber, and more than a million dollars were raised, petitions signed, because the re-election was supposed to be happening in 2022. But because of these petitions, because so many people rallied up, they moved it to 2018. Chanel said in her book, when this happened, the police surrounded her house. They literally knocked and warned her, like, you might be receiving death threats. You might not actually be safe. But she knew that this person, just like everybody else, is an elected official. They are not God. They just accounted that she would be unhappy with the sentencing, but they didn't know that 18 million people would be unhappy with her. On June the 5th, 2018, during the election, Judge Jeff Persky has been removed. And he was the first judge to be recalled by voters in California in 86 years, and the first in the U.S. since 1977. This, in simple terms, means that he cannot step his foot inside of a courtroom and judge on a single other case. After the changes have been brought to the place of her assault, to the laws of the country, eliminating the judge that allowed it to happen, Chanel could finally move on. 
She speaks about her and Lucas looking for a home after the trial. He was about to take this job somewhere else, move the relationship long distance again. And eventually she knew that she had to deal with it. So he got a job in the city and she still wanted a companion, wanted somebody to be there with her at all times. So she got a dog from this dog rescue and she named him Mogu, which is Chinese for mushroom. She indulged herself in both writing and art, two of her passions. So she had her museum debut with a 75-foot mural at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. And recently she has done this project for Think Chinatown, which is this nonprofit that's based in Manhattan's Chinatown, working at the intersection of storytelling, arts and neighborhood engagement. In 2016, while she was still known only as Emily Doe, she accepted a Woman of the Year award by Glamour. They named her a Woman of the Year because she changed the conversation about sexual assault forever, citing that her impact statement had been read over 11 million times. She would end up accepting this award once she revealed her name to the public after publishing her book in November of 2019. In 2019, she was also listed as an influential person in Time's 100 Next list. And finally, that is when the Stanford University installed a plaque on the campus memorializing the assault. After publishing that book, putting it all to paper, her capacity to handle it has grown. In the end, she remembered nothing. The obstacles became harder, but he slept 90 days in a cell. The judge will never step into the courtroom again. The appellate was shut down, became powerless. When the dust settled, only Emily Doe was left. And that is the story of Chanel Miller. In terms of what drives these survivors forward, I have only covered a few on the channel, but that is why we are here to get to the bottom of this. In a lot of cases, there is that will to live. There is that drive that moves them forward. Even here with Chanel, you see it as she realizes in that toilet that she thinks she is at the lowest point of her life. But she knows that she's in the middle of it. She's quite literally testifying at court. She's going through with it. And there is that drive that this, at least, didn't happen to somebody else. It is me going through it. It is me who is going to change the laws and make sure it doesn't happen to another person. There seems to be a bigger force driving the survivors that is above the simple will to survive. It goes beyond, it goes beyond driving them not just to move forward, but to move forward in this better, stronger light, driving the change forward. And in Chanel's case, she did it for the others. There's so many people who identified with her and because of her have realized that there isn't such a thing as a perfect victim, have realized that there is no one way of how you should act in court, that these people are trained to catch you out, that they are trained to re-victimize you again and again. And most importantly, she will not be reduced to what Brock Turner had done to her she will not be only his victim. And that is why the pseudonym Emily Doe is gone and now you know her name. That night in January of 2015, 
despite of the rotten justice system, there was one perpetrator against the survivor, against her heroes and against everyone working for that justice system on Chanel's side. The night of has showed that any single perp will encounter the hundreds of victim advocates, ready to change the laws. The night of Chanel Miller's assault has shown that humanity prevails. This was a heavy one. There was a bit of a mood shift. I don't know if you have noticed, there was a bit of a mood shift, but we have to talk about it. There is no other way but talking about it. This book was eye-opening for me, and I would definitely recommend all of you read it, educate yourself on the subject. If you are a person who likes to visualize things, if you like to sit and put yourself into somebody's shoes, and if you are a literally Slinda, if you go into something and you want all of the questions that you had answered, this book does that and so much more. It gives you like a bigger picture. There's so much that I couldn't even mention about everything from Trump's election to the details on Isla Vista massacre and how that fits into that whole narrative, the whole incel culture, Cosby's and Nasser convictions, the whole story behind Athlete A and all of the athletics team accusing their coach of sexual assault, like so many little things that just fit into this that have developed since 2015 towards this day and how the culture is changing, how the perspective is changing, combined with all of the little details about her own assault. You get the both worlds, you get the big picture and you get every single detail about what she was going through. And in educating ourselves about the issue, in knowing what can be done, in knowing that other victims aren't reducing themselves to being only the victims of sexual assault, in speaking openly about it, we can, step by step, episode by episode, make this world a better place. One motive at a time. Now... <laughs> Bye, fuckers. This is the longest one yet. You're you're out of your age. You're out of your fucking mind. Jesus, this episode's long.